Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Alex Mahadja. He is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Bros for America and a Huffington Post contributor. Co-host of the podcast Bros for America, he was named as one of the top eight people working to elect Hillary Clinton in 2016 by LGBTQ Nation. Alex Mahadja, thank you for joining me. Hey, I'm so glad to be with you. You founded Bros for America. Why did you decide to do that? So Bros for America is sort of uh, the latest iteration of what was uh, a pro-Hillary Clinton advocacy group back during the 2016 election. And it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek name that's that's sort of developed a life of its own. Like, it's not – we're not like a bunch of bros, like, hey, what's up, bro, like hanging out, talking politics. It really was a response to the um, Bernie bro slash uh, make America great again white nationalist sort of um, misogynistic, those overtures that we were seeing – sort of take precedence during the 2016 election. And we were just responding to that and saying, you know, our bros, quote, bros are everyone, men, women, gay, straight, um, people of all races, of all ages. And we're just we were promoting a message of inclusivity and and progressivism. And uh, and it was just a way of saying, like, we reject this sort of uh we reject those narratives that are coming out. And so when we lost the 2016 election, we were uh, much like a lot of people in our country, very sh- uh, shocked uh, and and we didn't expect it. So we decided to become bros for America and continue to fight for the policy positions and progressive um, platform points that we had been fighting for back in 2016 and continue the fight for those things because, um, as the news will tell you on any given day, that fight is very much so still necessary. So that's kind of the backstory behind Bros for America. As part of that fighting for the issues that you care about, that Bros for America is advocating for, You've appeared on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show. There is a clear divide between people who watch Tucker Carlson's show and those that support yourself, politicians like Hillary Clinton. How do you think you bridge the divide between those two groups? Is it by doing what you did going on Tucker Carlson's show? Is it even possible to bridge that divide? I mean, so the reason I went on, and if you watch the clip, it's it was a very volatile uh, interview. I mean, like he cut me off. He called me. He insulted me on air. It was really, you know, I called him a racist and um, it, it, it escalated quickly. And I'm actually in in the time that's passed since then, I, I reflect on that interview. On one hand, I'm proud of it because I feel like the message that I was taking to the Fox News audience stood up with time. It, 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 it's, I'm sort of vindicated by time and the way the story has unfolded. But I regret that I allowed myself to get caught up in the in the innate warfare element of it because you're absolutely right. The way that we do, I think, try to bridge this gap. And the reason I went on Tucker Carlson's show to begin with was because I wanted to talk to people that don't agree with me. Right now we live in this sort of there's these sort of echo chambers of of like sort of dichotomy where people just 
talk to each other and they don't compete anymore. The the ideas aren't competing with one another, one another. And I think that's the great experiment of America is that um, you let these ideas compete and the best rise to the top. But that's not happening if you exist in these echo chambers of yes men that just sort of regurgitate the same talking points within a group of people that agree with them. So I went to Fox News for that purpose and I was dismayed that um, I, I got a harsh lesson was that, which was that the Fox News audience, the people that ran Fox News, the people that I dealt with there, they weren't interested in having a meeting of minds and having a, a good faith debate. They were interested in destroying the messenger. They, and that's sort of the problem with Fox News in our country. It's a propaganda arm, much like RT. Um, you know, I think that the influence of Russia and corporate uh, corporate uh, mega giants in the media um, is far too great. And if we can get back to a place where we can talk to each other again and have honest debates, uh, I think that we have hope for our country. Uh, it's but it's got to be the only way. And and I'm hoping that we get to that place. But right now it is feeling very polarized. Do you think we will ever get to that place? Then do you think we're too buried now in these echo chambers? One of the things that was seen during the 2016 election was those who supported Hillary thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win clearly because they hadn't escaped from the echo chambers and heard what the Trump supporters were saying, what people who voted for Trump were saying. So there's a clear impact and a problem with staying in echo chambers. It's tough. It's got to we've got to approach the problem on a from a two pronged approach, really. It's like. What we just saw in the midterm elections here in the United States is that Americans very definitively and declaratively rejected the Trump administration, rejected the the message that he stands for. But to be honest with you, they did that in 2016, too. I, I, I try to remind people every chance that I get that in the United States in 2016, Hillary Clinton won uh the national popular vote by three million votes we're the only democracy western democracy that has this archaic electoral college system and even in that electoral college she lost with seventy thousand votes in three states that we those and in those three states we now know there was heavy russian influence there was a there was a year or two long uh disenfranchisement campaign by republicans to systematically rig the system so that voters of african american um descent or hispanic or or young voters were turned away from the polls their their votes cast legally uh and then were thrown out um so we're seeing this this massive the, the approach has to be at one cleaning up our elections integrity Meaning people one 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 man one vote. There should be no more um, like provisional ballot uh, issues or issues where people aren't having their say at the ballot box. That's a problem. That's a problem for our democracy. If we don't have free and fair elections, we are not a democracy. We are an oligarchy and a plutocracy. And and I think that you're seeing that happen right now. Um, when the Democrats took back Congress in the midterm elections. The very first bill introduced in Congress by those Democrats was H.R. 1, which is to restore elections integrity in the United States, to minimize the uh, the effects and the contributions of corporate PAC money in our elections. And so I'm heartened, um, but that's got to be the approach. And then maybe once we have restored elections integrity, 
once we define we sort of take back Congress and and restore some power, some some balance and power, we can start having those conversations again. But right now it is feeling very polarized and it's going to be up to Americans to sort of do the right thing and make sure uh, that they take back power from the uh, the ruling class. But this problem is happening all over the world. You know, it's happening in in England. It's happening in uh, in many countries and um so it's almost like a global, it's got to be a global effort. Do you think there's a problem with social media now that politicians didn't really understand social media until it was too late? They didn't understand the impact that digital campaigns, digital ads could have until the problem was on their doorstep. Totally. And but, you know, some of them weren't. And that's what's really problematic is in our country, the Republican leadership was made aware of the Russian efforts in a couple months, like a month before the election. And Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate majority leader, a total shithole. <laughs> and uh, he's a detestable creature. I don't even know how, you know, he's not even very well liked, but in his home state of Kentucky, he, he is, uh, he's managed to re- win reelection. And, uh, and he is the Senate majority leader through sort of pomp and circumstance, really. And the guy is, he was made aware of this effort and because it benefited his party, he remained silent. Now that is the, that is the epitome of hypocrisy and just, just real detail. I mean, the guy, I, I, I cannot stress enough how lowly I think of him. I think more lowly of him than Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is just a symptom of a bigger problem. People like Mitch McConnell, who are very corrupt in that way, they are the real problem. I am looking forward to him being removed from office. And we've got to keep our politicians accountable. If they don't stand up for free and fair elections, for democracy, you know, they've got to go. And we see that this happens around the world, like in, in South Korea, uh, in, in Kenya, there, uh, were sort of mass coordinated efforts to protect their democracies over the last year or two, um, that are very heartening to me. Like they poured into the streets in the city of Seoul for six or seven months until they removed their president, who was, by the way, involved in a WikiLeaks scandal and an influence peddling campaign. And they removed her. Uh, uh, the, the high Supreme Court, they removed her. So I think we're seeing evidence of it happening. Um, but yeah, it's got to be, um, we've got to keep our politicians accountable. Um, and really that's kind of come down to citizen participation. I think right now, uh, you're right. What the original question was about Facebook and, and social media. It's kind of come down to us at the, ma- at the molecular level, sort of individually as citizens of the world and of our respective countries to stand up against fake news, to fact check, to, it's, uh, I call it the fifth estate, you know, the fourth estate of American government is, the press, but there's now this fifth estate, which is the citizen, the citizen, the citizen journalist, the citizen activist, the citizen, um, you know, uh, citizens on the ground, basically, uh, the marches, the protests, the, the, the writing to your senators, the calling to your senators and your congressmen, the, this coordinated mass effort to sort of take back our government. Uh, that is going to be the way forward, and that's going to involve social media and and social keeping social media uh, 
uh, CEOs and, and bigwigs, you know, accountable for, for the decisions that they make. And, you know, if they don't, if they don't operate to further this cause, then we should sign off. I've practiced, uh, I'm on holiday right now and I've been, uh, I've been without my social media accounts by and large. It's really freeing and, uh, I encourage everyone to try that out. If you're listening to this, you want to go without your cell phone for a week. It's really pretty much amazing. How do you think the Republican Party has gone from being the party of Abraham Lincoln, the party of Ronald Reagan, to being the party of Mitch McConnell and the party of Donald Trump? Well, I mean, so I, parties change, you know, when people like talk about political parties, I kind of uh, I have to sort of remind them like political parties are just semi private fundraising organizations. Uh, it's comprised of millions of people that kind of cross generations and ideologies and there can be a lot of viewpoints and opinions espoused within a political party especially when in, in the united states you only have two and the problem with that is that you know if we get into this us versus them mentality this difference in binaries where everything that is opposite of you is innately bad or evil or suspect that's a problem because that means that any effort at compromise is immediately shot down and our democracy is founded on compromise. But right now we're in a, we're in an era where like it's and then the liberals and the Democrats are responsible for this, too. You know, it's like this uh, anything that a Republican is says or or suggests is innately suspect and that that can't be the way forward. We have to understand that there's broad ranges of people and viewpoints that are espoused in a political party and we can't demonize our opponents. Instead, what we ought to do is compete with them. And there's a difference between enemies and adversaries. You know, enemies seek to destroy each other. Adversaries merely seek to win uh, on the merits. And so I'd like to us to get to a point where we are competing again. But what the short, the, the that's a long answer, but the short answer is that, you know, the Republican Party has become controlled by uh, rich white men, basically. And that's just the way it's evolved. I think, uh, um, you've seen that sort of take root over the last 30 years more and more. And the response to that naturally is that, uh, Democrats have become increasingly diverse. Uh, it's become, uh, increasingly open to women and LGBT people. We just saw a hundred women elected to Congress in the midterm election, in the midterm election, which has historically low outpour, like out, you know, um, uh, turnouts. So we're seeing this, uh, this change in the, the parties happen over time, but, Ed, you know, Abraham Lincoln would turn over in his grave if he knew <laughs> where the Republican party was headed. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's going to have to involve the Republican Party failing for it to ever get better, for it to ever change. And what we see is that the Republican Party systematically has been rigging, and I use the word rigging very, you know, I, I hate the word rigging. But what we see them doing is because they can no longer win with numbers, with the population, because they're not in the majority – uh, and Democrats are increasingly opening their arms to these just cross generational, you know, cross all races. We're we're an inclusive party, and they are not. So they have had to systematically rig these elections by uh, sort of implementing policies that mean that try to win them the elections without having the majority, which is very undemocratic. But 
you know, we saw like 200,000 African-American voters disenfranchised in the 2016 election through through laws that were passed by Republican heads of state. So what they do is they pass these laws that make it very hard for African-American voters, for instance, to vote. So when they show up to the polls, their name might not be on the voter rolls because of, of we have an interstate voter cross-check system here. And uh, instead of, you know, having many voting stations in highly populated, dense uh, areas with minority, a big minority population, we see one voting station there. And then in like sort of scarcely populated white areas, we see like 15 voting stations, right? It's like it's a systematic rigging of the game through bureaucracy. And that's how they're able to win elections. And which is why we need to pass legislation that makes sure that um, that our elections integrity is restored here in this country. When looking towards 2020 future possible presidential elections, we hear about rich celebrity billionaires running for president. We've heard about Oprah Winfrey, Michael Bloomberg. Both names have been floated. Do you think these rich, wealthy celebrity individuals should be running for president, should be running for political office? Or, or should it be left to those with political experience? Well, the answer there really is like our, our constitution uh, sets forth two requirements for anyone who desires to run for president, that they be a natural born citizen and that they be 35 years of age. So if you meet those two requirements and you want to run for president, by God, you should run for president. And I made this article, I made this point in an article for the Huffington Post when Oprah was, there was talk about Oprah running. I don't see a problem with Oprah running. What I see a problem with is if you satisfy those constitutional requirements, but then, you know, are not forthcoming with the American people about where you have your foreign investments, for instance, that's problematic, which is why I think there should be laws that are, that are passed that require presidential nominees to disclose their tax returns, which Donald Trump did not ever do, which would have likely demonstrated that he has investments with Russian oligarchs, which would have likely showed that he's not as rich as he says he is, which would have likely showed that he isn't as philanthropic as he says he is, and which would have likely shown that he's uh, had a load of financial trouble throughout his career and isn't as good as a businessman as he says he is, which would have shot the entire perception of him. Uh, so he didn't release them. And I think that that's uh, I don't care how much money someone makes necessarily. Uh, if they're a billionaire, they're a billionaire. They have a advantage by very virtue of the fact that they have money. But if we create a system where uh, money, corporate PAC money is not allowed to influence our elections, where you must disclose your tax returns, where you've got transparency in elections and in, and in government, I don't see a problem. Um, I don't have a problem with Oprah Winfrey running. And I'll note Oprah Winfrey is a actual self-made billionaire. Donald Trump <laughs> got uh, like millions of dollars from his father, who was a crook, and <laughs> and that money was passed down from generation to generation. And there was a New York Times article recently that demonstrated that Donald Trump benefited from $400 million or so of tax fraud from his father, uh, who uh, who sort of gifted them money and hid their assets and hid and sort of skirted paying the proper amount of tax. So um, that's not self-made. The, the the man in the White House is a crook 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, I have problems with that. I don't have a problem with Bloomberg or Oprah so much because I believe that they are honest and they have, they have, uh, they're self-made. Um, and I, you know, I think that's, we've, we've got to be more focused on what they're doing with that money and, and get transparency in terms of where that money comes from. But to be sure, I don't think that Bloomberg or Oprah are going to be major contenders in 2020, rather. I think the next president of the United States is going to be a woman. That's just my idea. And um, I'm excited to see where that where that race goes. Do you have any ideas right now who you think will be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020? Do you have any ideas of who you want to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020? I very selfishly want Hillary Clinton to run. I think <laughs> I think that uh, that's just a personal thing. It's that is not a popular opinion. Um <laughs> I personally think that I'm, I'm, I'm all about justice. So I, I, I think that justice and, and gaining it, uh, is important. And I think I, I still feel that Michael, like many people, like what happened in 2016 was unjust. And so I don't know, just out of posterity and for, for the sake of, uh, writing that wrong, I would like Hillary Clinton to run, but I don't think she's going to run and I don't think she'll be the nominee. I think, um, we're seeing uh, a lot of talk about uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who just announced uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Senator Klobuchar, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Kristen Gillibrand. These are all the women that are sort of making uh, announcements and considering their runs right now. Um, I don't know who the Democratic it's, it's going to be a huge Democratic field. The Democratic primary is going to be. Very exciting in 2020 as we come up in the next few months because it is a huge field. No one expected Hillary Clinton to lose. You know, she was the Democrats particularly. We were good for about eight years of Clinton. Like we were ready and expected to be, you know, with Hillary through 2024. So I think uh, I think the fact that there's such a wide range of potential candidates is a very good for the party and b really exciting because we're going to get to have a real national conversation about what Democrats can do. And um, I'm excited. I have no idea who it's going to be right now. It feels extremely uh, up in the air. There's no clear front runner, whereas, you know, for the last, you know, 10 years, the Democrats have had a clear front runner is either Hillary or Obama. And so it's going to be exciting. It's going to be exciting to see unfold. I would just like Bernie Sanders to stay out of the goddamn race. <laughs> but that's also selfish. <laughs> In 2016, the media got criticized for the way they covered the campaign, the way they covered Donald Trump. And, and rightfully so. What can they learn from 2016 when they cover the 2020 presidential campaign? My concern is that the media isn't concerned with being better and that they're going to continue to repeat the same mistakes, much to their detriment. And in that way, when Donald Trump alleges fake news, and you know, it's not a fake news. Our journalists are some of the best in the world, um, and it's the foundation of American journalism is very um, strong. And I, I believe in American journalism, the American news media. That's why I consider myself a journalist. But I, um, I must say that there were the problem is that our news media, the broadcast news media particularly, is owned by five mega media corporations that own the entire world, you know, like Sony, ALL Time Warner, Disney, and a couple others. They own Viacom. They own, they own everything. These are major media conglomerates, and 
so long as media uh, institutions are owned by corporations, there's going to be a vested interest in selling ad revenue. And if you are trying to sell me a sleep number mattress instead of give me a holistic uh, reporting of the news to get more viewers, you're going to try to sell a narrative more than you are the facts. And that's what we have saw happen in 2016. We saw these false equivalencies and these counterbalancing narratives um, that were really trying to almost put them on the same playing field to make the race close, which is happened at Hillary Clinton's to Hillary Clinton's detriment because it wasn't close. You know, it was trying to take instead of comparing like Coke and Pepsi you know, it was really Coke and sewer water, but the media did a very good job of trying to make it seem like it was Coke and Pepsi, right? <laughs> and, you know, that was a major problem. And I and I took great umbrage with the news media for their efforts to do that. And you notice it in very, very obvious ways. If you watch American broadcast media, it's almost irritating. It's it's I had to turn it off. I stopped. I, I actually haven't watched cable news in my country since 2016, I get all my news from either print or the internet um, from vetted sources um, because of this. And I'm, I'm very concerned about that, to be honest with you. I, I am concerned that that problem is going to continue on uh, through 2020. And I hope that it changes. I'm not heartened that it will, which is why I say that it's got to come to that fifth estate, this the citizen journalist, the citizen to, you know, to adjudicate and process information more judiciously, to be more shrewd about the way we absorb this information, to fact check, um, to to vet our sources, to be more diligent. We've got to get off of auto drive and uh, be more alert and be more engaged. Instead of live broadcasting press conferences and these speeches, instead of putting political speeches on the news, live, unvetted, no fact checks whatsoever, the media should be doing more to ensure that what they present is the reasoned argument, the reality of the situation, not just the packaged quotes that are put out there unfiltered. Precisely. Because there was like a lot of like, there was a lot of like sort of hoopla around Donald Trump's speech about immigration lately. And everybody knew that he was going to get up and he was going to lie through his teeth, just like he does all the time. And it was going to be anti-immigrant propaganda. And and sure enough, it was. But because there was all this hoopla about the speech, the media outlets in this country opted to run it. They preempted other programming to run the speech live on television. All the networks came out and they said they were going to air the speech. And in 2014, they declined to do that for Barack Obama because for the very same purpose, he was going to give an immigration speech. And they did that because they, there wasn't enough hoopla generated around it. That should not be the standard by which our news media decides to run a speech. You know, they should have by now known that this man who, by the way, alleges that they are fake news and uh, and has basically fallen short of inciting violence against news media uh you know they should have said this man is going to lie and that this speech is not has no uh has no purpose but to deliver propaganda to the american people and we're not going to run it and and instead of like fearing the appearance of partisanship 
just do what the facts require because there is a moral truth there. The moral truth, the truth of the matter was that it was going to be propaganda. So if it ends up benefiting Democrats or or left wing or whatever, that's fine with me because it was the truth. If you are compromising the truth because you want to seem impartial, then uh, then you're not really doing your job. You know, if the truth sides with Democrats, then let the truth side with Democrats for now. And some what and in the future, it'll side with the other side sometimes. But, uh, yeah, I was I'm troubled by that. You're absolutely right. It's got to be about getting to the truth and being factual. And also, you know, I'm an opinion editorialist. I write for the Huff Post. Every piece that I write is almost every piece has been commentary. We've got to do a better job of discerning commentary from news reporting, the way we process that. And also the news media has got to be better at saying like this is being very clear about the fact that this is commentary. This is political opinion. And this is news reporting because it's become blended. Fox News, it's almost all opinion. It's all a political commentary network now at this point. It's not giving you news, you know. You mentioned earlier about how Donald Trump isn't necessarily the rightful, legitimate president. You've called Hillary Clinton the rightful, legitimate president. You've cited Russian interference in the 2016 campaign. You cited the fact that he didn't win the popular vote. Do you still stand by those comments? Oh, yes. In fact, I believe I'm vindicated with time. And in fact, I I do stand by it. And I think that, that more facts have come out about other ways that she's she was the legitimate president. One is that uh, three million uh, very valid, validly cast, legally cast votes were thrown out in 2016 because they were provisional ballots or they were voter cross checked out. And those votes, you're telling me that if 70,000 votes decided the Electoral College in three states, you're telling, do you think that those votes would have been shored up in three million of those ballots that were thrown out? I believe they would have been. I believe it's almost indisputable. That they would have been when we find out that Wisconsin had 200,000 African-American voters. And this was proven in a study who were who were disenfranchised, who had their valid but ballots cast out. And Trump won that state with 20,000 votes. You think that the 200,000 votes would have shored up the 20,000 votes she needed to win the Electoral College? Absolutely. I think uh, I think the major failing of Americans sort of subsequently to that election was not standing up for the rightful victor. And that was because the election was so hostile and so volatile. And we are so sort of uh, polarized right now. Um, And because, frankly, Americans have this this disposition that it's like that things are impossible if they've never been done before. And what I'm saying is just because it's never been done before doesn't mean that it's not possible. It's certainly possible. The Constitution does not say anything about prohibiting. It doesn't say anything about a new election, but it doesn't say anything about prohibiting a new election either. It's mum on the subject. Um, And so I believe that it was a time for Americans to stand up for our democracy. And our major failing was that we didn't. And part of that was because of the misinformation. Part of that was because of, um, you know, Comey's letter to Congress Part of that, which uh, if your listeners aren't aware, you know, seven 
or eight days before the election in 2016, our FBI director, James Comey, released a letter to Congress that went public, which intimated that Hillary Clinton was um, being investigated for criminal conduct, which was totally bogus. I mean, she was, has been completely absolved of any criminal wrongdoing, but he knew the impact it would have. And he also knew at the same exact time that Donald Trump was being investigated for conspiring with a foreign hostile power to influence the outcome of the election and decided to remain mum about that when in public. I mean, he 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 shifted the balance uh, for Donald Trump in a way that was a illegal because it was against FBI protocol at the Department of Justice protocol. He shouldn't have done it. He knows he shouldn't have done it. And um, be unethical. It was uh, it was wrong. And so when you see the totality of the circumstances, the fact that the president himself, I believe, conspired with an enemy and committed acts of treason and obstruction of justice in order to win the election. Right. This precipitated his election. That makes the election invalid, in my opinion. It makes the election null and void. And so. um that's my viewpoint. I stand by it still to this day. I think uh, it's the it is the biggest travesty in our democracy's history. Um, and uh, it's it's a tragedy, really. And hopefully we can rectify it in years to come. But um, I, that's how I view it. Yeah. The issues with people's votes being counted were seen again in 2018 with states like Georgia reporting voter suppression efforts. There were issues down in Florida with the votes being counted in that state. Mm. How can Democrats, how can voters, whatever party, ensure that in 2020 their vote, whoever it's for, is counted, is cast? Well, first of all, I think the outcome of the 2018 elections was on sort of indisputably a blue wave, they call it, quote unquote. It was it was a major win and and a huge historic uh, turnout. Um, and that was because of these sorts of interferences with our election. I think the American population, the American people are are activated right now, um, are involved in a way that we haven't seen in like 30 or 40 years since the 1960s. I think it's the second great wave of citizen activism. I'm very heartened about the direction that we're going in. Um, but the problem is not going to disappear overnight. You're absolutely right. There were major problems in Georgia and Florida. And I think that the solution is to continue to organize, to continue to um, speak up. You know, like th th those states are going to be majorly in play for 2020. And, and that's actually – there's a time when Georgia was a was a deep red state. I mean, I, we would have never thought that it would even be in play. But now we are even seeing in Texas. Texas is now a historically red state uh, is now in play for 2020 because of people like Beto O'Rourke, who lost his race, just like in Florida. Uh, you know, uh, Andrew Gillum lost his race. And, and in Georgia, uh, Stacey Abrams lost her race. But what they did was they activated a a. A majority of this, a, a, a faction of this electorate that really needed, we really needed that, that spark. Um, and so the problem isn't going to be solved overnight, but I think that we're working towards it and I'm heartened about where we're headed. And 
Um, you know, Oprah said this actually in a speech, but you just got to turn out in numbers that they can't deny. And I think that we're going to do that in 2020. You've described both of Donald Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court as stolen seats. How did Democrats react to those appointments to the Supreme Court since those appointments are for life? Those Supreme Court justices will serve there as long as they want or until they die. Uh, or until they're impeached, because you can't impeach Supreme Court justices, actually. But, um, you know, that's never going to probably never going to happen. But I think the Democratic response to the last two years was the best that they could do. I think that in messaging and optics, they could have probably been more forceful. But look, like we saw party line votes for both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. There was uh, party line votes, um, except for, uh, I think, for Gorsuch's confirmation, there were two Democrats uh, who voted – three Democrats who voted yes. Uh, two of those three Democrats lost their seats in the Senate in the 2018 election. So let that be a, you know, a warning shot. You know, the, the, it was almost a total party line vote. They did the best they could. They don't have the majority in the Senate, though, at the end of the day. And so uh, we've got to get on regaining a majority in the Senate for 2020, I think – that has to be an imperative as well. Um, but they, I think that their response uh, over the last two years has been, by and large, good. I think um, the way that they grilled Kavanaugh in those Senate confirmation hearings was fantastic, and they really, they really made him uh, pay through the nose. Uh, and he is not. I don't think he is appropriate for the Supreme Court based off of his own doing, let alone being illegitimately appointed by a president who shouldn't be there. I think he's not appropriate for the Supreme Court for many reasons. But um, the Democratic response has been good. We just have to get a majority in the Senate. Beyond the Supreme Court appointments that Donald Trump has made, what do you think the lasting impact of the Trump presidency will be on the United States you know, I think that Donald Trump's legacy, if it was if he had his way, would be death to America. <laughs> you know, uh, it's we see that in the way that he responded to Puerto Rico. We see that in the way that he responds to the Las Vegas shootings, to the mass shootings in this country. You know, people are dying in this country and in in mass shootings. People are dying in this country. You know, 3.4 million American citizens struggling to recover uh, from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico San Juan city mayor, Carmen Cruz, she responded to the federal government's inefficient response to the hurricane by comparing it to genocide. I tend to agree with her. I think when you see that he, uh, moves to take away health insurance from 8.9 million American children by, uh, allowing funding for the children's health insurance program to lapse, you know, that which, by the way, was to spite Hillary Clinton because it was a program that she had that she uh, had passed while she was first lady. You know, when you see that the U.S. and the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, votes against a U.N. resolution that condemns the death penalty as a punishment for consensual same sex relationships. You're, that's a major affront to the LGBT community that could literally lead to the loss of human life. So Donald Trump's legacy, if he were to have his way, would very much so be death to America. I think that uh, he wants to destabilize Western democracies 
to the benefit of the Russian oligarchs and the American oligarchs, frankly, uh, who stand to benefit from less regulation uh, uh, and, and removed sanctions um, to benefit the ruling billionaire class. Um, and that would be his legacy as well. Uh, and also he's stacking the Fed, his, his actual long lasting, uh, impact that he's going to for sure have, uh, much to my sadness is that he has stacked the federal judiciary with judicial appointments that are, uh, that are very young, conservative, um, minds and that's going to have a long-lasting impact on our country unfortunately that's going to be something that's going to be harder to overturn in one election or fight in one election it's that we have federal judges now who will who will support overturning roe versus wade who would who would support these extreme right-wing viewpoints um that is going to be problematic to me and, and it is an impact that he's already had he has stacked the federal judiciary with federal judicial appointments at a rapid pace uh, he's outsizing his predecessors in that regard in a very troubling way. So final question for you. Yes. Um, do you and Bros for America have any plans as we approach 2020? What are you thinking heading into the presidential election? You know, when we were campaigning for Hillary Clinton, we had become an almost extension of that campaign. By the end of the campaign, we were producing PSAs and we were uh, working with her digital team to uh, to release memes and to respond to, to debates uh, through social media messaging. We were making thousands of phone calls. We were having fundraisers. Um, I I anticipate that as the 2020 election gears up, uh, once we have an official Democratic nominee, we will um, return to that sort of very uh, involved campaigning. Um, right now we're sort of, we're gonna, we have our podcast, which is returning next week after a, a bit of a hiatus. We finished our first season last year and, uh, we're coming back for our second season. So that's going to be great. And that's going to be the way we sort of handle the day to day political, uh, goings on. We have, uh, members, uh, we have about 15,000 members in our Facebook group. If anyone wants to join facebook.com slash groups slash bros for Hillary. It's the URL, but we are Bros for America now. We we welcome our membership across uh, the political spectrum. Come join us, um, and we're having a conversation there that's that's ongoing uh, and very much so engaged. And then um, and then uh, yes, I think if we have a Democratic candidate that we prefer over the other, we will come out early and, and announce in favor of them. But we're kind of waiting to see where this uh, the Democratic primary field goes. And of course, we'll be there to um, be a watchdog on the president and the Republican administration as we move forward in the next two years um, by uh, calling out progressive policies, by by protesting them, by making sure we have we, we remain activated, as you said, in terms of um, calls to Congress and making sure that uh, the Congress is doing what we put them there to do. So that's the sort of the future plan right now for B4A. Alex Mahaja, thanks for joining me. Hey, it was such a pleasure. And, uh, and, uh, you should join us on Bros for America podcasts. Uh, and let's have a, let's have another cross country, uh, <laughs> international conversation. It's been a real treat. That was Alex Mahaja, the co founder of Bros for America. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Alex Mahaja and more about Bros for America at brosforamerica.com. That's all for this week. 
What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. Until next time, goodbye.